Hello, my geese links. Uh, this is the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 37. And this episode was a treat for a lot of reasons. Uh, one reason is that the person I spoke with, Paul Woodruff, is really not, I, I wouldn't consider him just a philosopher in the contemporary sense, uh, but a philosopher in the classical sense, and that he seems quite wise. I've never used this word out loud, but it seems appropriate. He's sagacious, uh, and I suppose that it might actually also be pronounced sagacious, but I'll go with sagacious. So that was really nice. And it was also a treat because of what we talked about. We talked about philosophy of war or philosophy and war. I'm not sure what the the correct uh, categorization would be if you were going to list that as an area of specialty or something on a CV. But we talk about war, philosophy, and some of the practical ethical situations um, or decisions you might have to make. For instance, uh, war turns people into liars, or there are issues about whether or not it's ever just to fight a war, or if it can ever be justified to kill civilians, whether um, that's to protect yourself or your fellow soldiers. So Paul graduated from Princeton in 1965, and he then went to the Vietnam War, where he served as an officer. And then when he returned, he went back to Princeton, where he got his PhD. And since then, he's been a professor at UT Austin, though he just uh, retired in September. And if you look up his CV, you'll find that it's uh, pretty unbelievable, the amount of uh, translations, the books, the papers he's written. But it was a really great conversation, and I learned a lot, especially since I've never thought about, let alone uh, talked about in a public forum, these issues. And Paul was a really great storyteller, and that also made this uh, a particularly engaging conversation for me. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and leave a comment or a like uh, if you did. I saw that you graduated from Princeton in 1965 and you were studying classics how was it or what was it about your temperament or your high school experience or maybe it was only at Princeton that you became interested in classics but how was it that you ended up studying that when you were there well uh, I had two main interests going into Princeton and I had uh, actually three main interests going in, and I had two of them coming out. Uh, okay. I was very much interested in, in Russian uh, novels, and I wanted to learn Russian so I could read them and study them in the original. I was fascinated by Greek tragedy and also by Greek philosophy. And the two of those that survived were the Greek ones. Uh, mm -hmm. the, I couldn't study both Greek and Russian at the level I wanted, so I focused on Greek. And uh, 
really uh, was extraordinarily lucky to encounter Gregory Vlastos fairly early on. And, and that was your so thesis advisor? Philosophy. Say good. And that was your thesis advisor? Uh, no. Well, he was for my PhD. Okay. Okay. And that was later. When I was an undergraduate, uh, I wrote my senior thesis on Homer uh, with a man named Fennec. Uh, and meanwhile, I helped to start a, a, a student group that put on a a Greek play in Greek. We did the uh, Hippolytus in Greek. And that was a wonderful experience. Okay. And so I saw, though, that you didn't end up going back for your PhD until after you served in the Vietnam War. And so what were the events that led you to go from studying classics at Princeton to the Vietnam War? Well, my generation uh, grew up uh, knowing that we would be uh, almost certainly drafted after we left college. And so very large numbers of us went through ROTC so we could serve as officers. But almost everybody, many of my friends at Princeton were also in ROTC. Uh, we all had no, or none of us had any expectation that there was going to be a war in Vietnam. If there was going to be a war, we thought it would be over Berlin <clears throat> in those days. And of course, the year I signed up for ROTC was the year our president said, ask not what you can do for your, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It was a, a very different age. Uh, so I graduated in 65 with a commission in the army, as did many of my friends, and an understanding that I could pursue one degree of, in, as a graduate student before going on active duty. So I had three years uh, in Oxford pursuing a degree in philosophy and classics, and those were wonderful years, but I, I, I was afraid from day to day that I might be called up because my uh, permission to do graduate work was contingent on the needs of the army. They could call me back any time. <clears throat> in 65, when I got my commission, we still did not know there was a war in Vietnam. Uh, the, there actually were troops uh, in Vietnam, but the government was not letting the public know about that. <clears throat> That summer, of course, it became very clear. It was not just a war, it was a very dangerous and morally complicated war. <clears throat> so I read about it avidly in the British press because I was in England at Oxford and uh, with great concern. Uh, then when I finished at Oxford, I had uh, time for one semester at Princeton before I had to go on active duty in the January of 69. And then I had six months military training, a year in Vietnam, and then I spent six months training other people to go to Vietnam, and then I was back at Princeton working on my PhD. So what 
so I'm pretty I'm pretty unfortunately woefully ignorant about what the military is like and and the history of war uh, in the Vietnam War and something that you said that I was just curious about is you wanted to be an officer that's why you did the ROTC program what what's the is it just a status thing being an officer or you don't have to be on the front lines or what is the the benefit of taking that route if you know you're going to be oh. drafted well we certainly expect to be in the front lines we have we were in an ROTC uh, artillery unit which meant we were being trained to be forward observers that's actually the most dangerous one of the most dangerous jobs in the army in those days we didn't have drones or satellites we had to get far enough forward we could actually see the enemy and direct artillery at them. Uh, then I actually got a very different kind of assignment in the end. Uh, we, what is the difference between an officer and an enlisted person? It's not just status. Uh, of course, uh, uh, there's an awful lot to say about this, but I'll, I'll just say one, make one point about it. Uh, the enlisted people are uh, are supposed to obey their superiors, uh, really, no matter what. Uh, the officers swear the same oath uh, that the president of the United States swears to defend the Constitution, and it is understood that we have some uh, room for judgment as to what orders we obey and what orders we do not. Uh, officers, uh, of course, have a higher status. They're paid more. Uh, they have more responsibilities. Uh, they get more training. Uh, I think that my training as an officer and my experience as an officer has been enormously valuable to me in my career as an administrator in academia. <clears throat> and what was the experience of being in the war like for you that made it so uh, because i'm assuming it wasn't just being an officer but it was being a soldier more broadly and being in the war that was uh, a transformative experience for you and well, it the, clearly sh shaped uh, your philosophy the downside of being an officer is of course that you're you're you have a higher level of responsibility uh, for what you do and what other people do. Um, this, I became very interested in in the following sort of problem, because it was endemic in our area. I was on a in a border province in the Delta, uh, Chadok. Uh, that is bordering on Cambodia, uh, just to the west of the Mekong River. 
and there uh, we did not have American troops. In fact, we had and hardly any Vietnamese troops. Actually, we were we were using a Vietnamese militia uh, mostly, and they were actually uh, units that had been and in a, in a sense still were uh, part of uh, of a Waha Buddhist army that had been fighting both the communists and the Catholic government in Saigon, <clears throat> uh, hoping for Buddhist independence. Uh, they didn't want to be ruled by Catholics or communists. Uh, but they had come over to our side uh, because they thought the communists were the more dangerous to them. And that was true. When the communists won, they utterly suppressed this Buddhist sect, which was dominant in uh, my part of the Delta. Uh, it had been founded by a charismatic, uh, a wonderful charismatic character named Winfu So, uh, who uh, had been killed by the uh, by the communists in the late 40s and cut into small pieces and distributed around so that there'd be no burial site around which his Wahao Buddhist followers could gather. <clears throat> they did create such a site anyway. Uh, it, uh, uh, what I've learned about that Buddhist group made me admire it uh, tremendously. Uh, we had, as I said, we had no American troops, but we had American naval personnel. We were the, I think, the largest concentration of U.S. Navy in Vietnam was in my province because of all the water. The rivers and the canals were there. And so there were at least a thousand uh, U.S. sailors there at any time. And we also had helicopters uh, with guns on them that were uh, supporting us and supporting the uh, the Navy. And we we would go out on operations uh, with the Vietnamese militia, the Wahao militia, really, mostly Wahao. And the, uh, but the Navy operated quite independently of the Vietnamese. And when a, 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 one of the Navy boats or one of the helicopters came under fire from the enemy, which could happen quite often, uh, they would fire back. And if uh, the enemy fired from near a, a village or a concentration of civilians, uh, when the Americans fired back, they would kill civilians. So I became very concerned and energized by the question, is it uh, legitimate for us to kill civilians in an effort to defend our own soldiers and sailors and pilots and helicopter crews and so on? There was one... Uh, uh, sort of turn in the river uh, that was extremely dangerous for our Navy people because uh, the VC were almost always there uh, shooting 
rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, at the, uh, at the boats, and the boats would always fire back. And there was a village on that point. So civilians are being killed. And they, they contacted the Americans and begged the Americans to stop returning fire. Um, the Americans didn't want to do that because really the only way we could locate the enemy uh, was to uh, tool around uh, in the countryside on land or sea until they fired at us and then we could fire back. It was the only way we could find them. <coughs> I think that was true all over Vietnam. So we wanted to fire back. But the village leaders went after failing to persuade the Americans to change their modus operandi. The village leaders went to the VC and the VC uh, after a while agreed. Uh, to stop firing on the Americans from that point, which was good public relations for them. Is it uh, a legitimate act of self-defense to fire back when you're under fire under circumstances in which you'll kill civilians? I I've came to believe that it was not. Uh, how can you call it self-defense uh, when you're uh, cruising into their territory with heavy weapons, <laughs> you know that you're provoking an attack. It's not self-defense. And in any case, when you pick up weapons as a soldier, you are essentially agreeing to the ancient rule that those who live by the sword die by it, uh, and that's an an agreement which the civilians have never made and which you're not entitled to uh, expect them to have made. So as I thought about this, I came to see <coughs> I really came to see but the soldiers on the other side, although we're not really uh, guilty, uh, that, that this word, you know, we all believe in uh, that it's wrong to kill innocent people. In, the word innocent has two meanings. Uh, the original meaning uh, is uh, harmless. Uh, Nocao is Latin for harm. So innocent means uh, harmless, and a civilian is innocent because uh, civilians are not carrying weapons. They're harmless in that sense. Uh, in a moral sense, uh, they may or may not be innocent. They may, may be totally behind the bad guys in the war. <coughs> in a moral sense, the soldiers may be entirely innocent. We were, of course, as you may have read, uh, we were receiving uh, units made up of, of teenage uh, teenage boys who had been recruited in North Vietnam and sent down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to die in the South. They were 
as innocent morally as anybody could be. Could we claim uh, that shooting these enemy soldiers was anything like self-defense? I think that if the paradigm of justified homicide is self-defense, uh, then uh, any any kind of killing in war uh, is unjustified because uh, nothing that we do in war meets the standard uh, for killing in self-defense. <clears throat> because you've shown up with a weapon? Yes, right, because you're provoking an attack on you. If you provoke the attack, you can't claim self-defense. Mm-hmm. Morally speaking, anyway. So, I I came to believe that uh, the traditional just war theory is simply wrong, uh, that there is no justification for killing in war. And the best... So, the so what? what is the traditional just war theory? Well, let, let me just finish the sentence here. Sure, sure. The... Most we can say in our own defense of what we do in war is that uh, killing in war may be the the least bad option. Uh, in 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 a moral dilemma, I I take it that in the, uh, my my view is uh, not that the the Ukrainian army is justified in killing Russians because those poor Russian kids who are being drafted and sent down there really do have not done anything to deserve to die. Uh, but it's the the least bad option for the for the Ukrainians uh, in view of the uh, attack that it was made on them. Um, my view about moral dilemmas is that they are they are real and that when a moral dilemma occurs it's always somebody's fault uh, in this case it's uh, putin and his advisors have created a situation in which the ukrainians do face this uh, rather difficult moral situation in which they either have to uh, consent uh, to lose their freedom uh, or they have to uh, kill a bunch of, of very unfortunate, uh, essentially innocent people, and I think they're right to defend themselves. It's the, it's but not because it's justified. Uh, just war theory uh, goes back to the Renaissance, and. Uh, it would uh, it would declare that uh, the Ukrainians are justified in defending themselves. Uh, the defense has to be has to meet certain conditions. Uh, there's there are two branches to just war theory. Uh, there's us ad bellum and us in bello. Uh, justice 
in going to war and justice in the conduct of the war. So justice in the conduct of the war would be violated by torture, for example, uh, or uh, as some people have argued, uh, massive attacks on civilians. Uh, I think the bombing of the firebombing of Tokyo, uh, which has been in the news lately, uh, would probably count as a violation of justice in war uh, by traditional standards. It uh, violates another a number of the fine points of just war theory. <clears throat> Yusad Bellum, uh, justice in going to war would require that uh, that you be the victim that your country is the didn't start it it's the victim uh, and when we uh, when we went to war against Iraq in 2003 uh, that was supposed to be a preemptive uh, strike against an attack that uh, Bush and his staff thought was coming. Uh, as a matter of fact, it wasn't. They got their information wrong uh, for one reason or another. Uh, they wanted that information and the, they, got, they got the report that they'd asked for, even though it was false. Uh, <clears throat> but there was a debate at the time as to whether preemptive war satisfied the standards uh, for U.S. ad bellum. And I think the consensus probably was that it, that preemptive war does not. And the, and oh, just a, a side point. Um, there's been, I've recently read uh, a discussion of Benvenuto Cellini, uh, the Italian sculptor and jeweler, a, a brilliant artist. Uh, he murdered three people. And also... At war? Pardon? At war? Uh, they were... Uh, his defense was that they would have murdered him if he hadn't got them first. So these were preemptive killings in self-defense. Uh, I don't think preemptive killing can count as self-defense. Uh, though he actually got away with it. it. Italy in those days was a pretty violent place. Yeah, uh, 600 years ago, probably yeah. a lot more violent. Well, I mean, we, in, we in some ways. Romeo and Juliet and uh, yeah, uh, nobody went outdoors. No male would go outdoors without a sword and a dagger from what I've read, wouldn't be safe. You wouldn't think of going out unarmed. <clears throat> so, yeah, the uh, rules of just war theory, as I say, go back to the Renaissance. There's debate about just exactly how they apply. Uh, but in, in my view, there are two reasons 
why we should reject the whole theory. Uh, and one reason is that none of the killings, or almost none of the killings, that are essential to war can be justified. You can't wage a war uh, without killing innocent people. That's just a fact about war. Uh, and the other point is, uh, there's now a movement uh, coming from a different direction against just war theory. Uh, we're learning that moral injury is endemic to warfare. Uh, many, many veterans uh, return from a combat zone uh, with moral injuries. And that's a very good reason uh, for not going to war. And for what is a moral war injury? Through a different moral lens. So there is a, a an argument of, that a number of philosophers have been making against just war theory on the grounds that war causes moral injury to both sides. And what is a moral injury? A moral injury. Uh, is uh, is something you sustain uh, when you believe you have done something that you believe violates uh, moral principles that are very important to you. Uh, it's a, it shatters your integrity. It shatters your the unity of your uh, your soul one way of putting it. Uh, the first philosopher to talk about moral injury is Socrates in the Apology in the Crito and also in the Apology to some extent and in the Gorgias and in the Republic book one and so on. Uh, Socrates repeats this theme that it's far worse to do wrong than to have wrong done to you because when you do wrong you injure your soul. You divide the soul against itself. Uh, that's because Socrates assumes that everyone has some kind of orientation towards the good. And when you do wrong, uh, you're, you essentially become at war with yourself. And that metaphor, being at war with yourself, is something that has been used by people who haven't read Greek philosophy at all, who were trying to explain what happens uh, to veterans who come back uh, in this in this condition. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Now, when you came back from the war and went to Princeton for your PhD, were you already or, or not already, but did you immediately start dealing with some of the questions you raised? Like, is it legitimate for us to kill civilians to defend our own people? Or did those questions wait until after you had done your other work towards maybe your dissertation in ancient uh, philosophy? I, I started worrying about these things while I was still in in Vietnam. And but I didn't know how to think about them. Uh, 
I was, by the time I'd been in, in country, as we said, for six months, I was already feeling uh, divided against myself. Were there any situations that you had to go through personally that put you in these sorts of situations where you had to make a very uh, difficult or muddy moral decision that left you thinking about it afterward? Uh, Things happened... uh, I'm not, you know, the language of moral decisions may not fit the real world very well. Uh, I One of my uh, duties was reporting on the success of a program called uh, Feng Wang, or Phoenix, uh, in which in our province, at any rate, the, the Vietnamese police were assigned to arrest uh, people uh, who were civilians and needed to be detained because of their support uh, for the enemy. Uh, this is a a kind of program that is has been necessary uh, in every civil war that I read about. Uh, Lincoln, after all, suspended habeas corpus uh, when he was president and detained civilians. Uh, So there's nothing in principle violating uh, traditional uh, behavior in war to detain civilians. But under the Geneva Convention, which the U.S. has signed, I think uh, we were all given Geneva Convention cards to carry in our wallets. We were supposed to follow it. Under the Geneva Convention, uh, detainees are supposed to be treated humanely and given a chance to defend themselves through some sort of hearing. Uh, The United States hit a low, as you probably know, in the treatment of detainees in Iraq. And during that period, uh, the White House actually made an effort to distance itself from the Geneva Conventions. And when a a wonderful American officer named Ian Fishback asked his commanding officer about the Geneva Conventions, are we or are we not bound by the Geneva Conventions, which I thought this country had signed. His commanding officer couldn't answer him, uh, could give no answer. Uh, Because as I said, the White House, I think, was quite deliberately uh, pushing back on the Geneva Conventions. Eventually, Ian Fishback wrote uh, the Secretary of the Army with this question, and he uh, responded by telling the Army of the Secretary of Defense, uh, he, he responded by telling the army to get rid of uh, Fishback. <clears throat> that was how they treated the Geneva Convention 
in the Iraq war. Uh, and that's a very sad story. You can read about it on the web. Uh, in Vietnam, we were at least uh, uh, at least we were the, the, we were saying we followed the Geneva Convention. Uh, I don't, we were not actually. Uh, our detainees were not treated well, <clears throat> and were not given a chance to defend themselves. <clears throat> and I found, as I uh, looked at the evidence to write up these reports that I had to do every month, <clears throat> I found good evidence. I thought that we were uh, we were detaining the wrong people. Uh, that the people we were detaining were essentially innocent, and that the really dangerous people uh, were hiding somewhere safely. Uh, after the war ended, uh, I found that I was right. And in 2002, I actually visited the caves where the dangerous people were staying and where they survived. Almost all of them survived the war uh, and came back. As soon as the communists won, there they were uh, as a kind of shadow, as a they had been a shadow government. Now they were the government in the Delta. Uh, I wrote a report uh, laying out what I'd found, uh, that uh, evidence pointed to the conclusion we were sending uh, innocent people to these dreadful detention camps and the dangerous people uh, were safe from us. Uh, that report got as far as uh, the colonel who commanded my advisory unit, and he stopped it dead because he said it would make him look bad. The program had been sending nothing but glowing reports of its great success uh, for several years now, and now suddenly under his command, it had gone to hell. Uh, he couldn't allow that report to go forward. Right. One thing you mentioned in one of your papers that I saw uh, regarding moral injury is that uh, war, the incentives around war tend to make people into liars. And that's one way in which they injure themselves, I suppose. Yes. Well, the first casualty of war is truth is an old bromide, and it's, hmm. and it's largely true. Uh, Yeah, I uh, I was very upset that I couldn't uh, send this report forward and I couldn't think of an alternative. Uh, so I continued to file the, the traditional reports that made it look as if we were succeeding. You know, we, as you probably know, if, if, you, if you read the reports, uh, we've been phenomenally successful in Afghanistan for 20 years. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, all that mm -hmm. success in Afghanistan over 20 years, uh, all documented uh, carefully with reports uh, from the military and others. Uh, if, if you want to receive reports of success, in any organization, you will receive them. You know, this is one of the hardest things 
in any organization is to get the truth out from the bottom of the organization because uh, people in positions of authority all the way up the chain of command uh, are uh, have incentives to make sure that only success is reported. It's not, not just the army. It's true of, you know, General Electric or the Ford Motor Company or, or any other large organization. Uh, very hard to get the truth. Academia. There's so many incentives to lie. In the military, the incentives are very strong. And it, in my view, it really has a culture of uh, shading the truth at any rate. Uh, I had a, I got to know, oh, back in the 80s, uh, the general in command of Fort Hood, who was a wonderful man, by the way. I was really impressed by him. Uh, he had adopted what was then fashionable, uh, a zero defects policy. And you'll find similar zero defects policies in a number of businesses. What does that mean? Uh, it means that uh, if you're a, a mid-level uh, commander or mid-level uh, uh, manager, uh, you, you, you are simply not allowed to let anything go wrong. Uh, you have, if, if anything goes wrong, you must fix it immediately. And so what it meant at Fort Hood was that all the training exercises, judging from the reports, uh, came off perfectly with zero defects, as mm -hmm. the general had commanded. Uh, but he was a good enough general that some of his subordinates felt they could talk to him and tell him the truth. And somebody came to him apparently and said, sir, do you realize that your, your policy is, is making us uh, into liars? And he said, no, I don't understand that. Explain that. And it, it, he did explain it and the general did change his policy. I have a friend who has taught in the business school and he would ask uh, his uh, MBA students who all had had some experience in the business world uh, if they had served in a company that had comparable policies. Um, there's a, a tendency uh, for the higher-ups in management to say, uh, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions uh, only. And so my friend would ask, how many people served in a company like this? So half the hands would, or two-thirds of the hands would go up. And then he would say, and how many of you uh, lied to your superiors? The same hands went up. Uh, really the most famous recent story about that kind of management is uh, Volkswagen. Uh, they had a management with that, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions uh, <clears throat> mandate. And the problem was, how are we going to 
I mean, the challenge was we must sell X number of uh, diesel cars in America by this year. And uh, you figure out how to do it. Well, the problems that the engineers recognized was that they they couldn't meet American emission standards. Uh, and they were supposed to be selling a million cars a year by a certain point. Uh, and they and they were dealing with management that uh, <clears throat> wouldn't listen to a problem of this kind. They would say, well, you solve it. You're the engineers. And they did solve it, as you know, uh, by developing a computer program that essentially faked the emissions results. <clears throat> and they were found out. Uh, which cost Volkswagen, I don't know, billion dollars or something like that. It was a, uh, a, a really striking example of uh, that kind of, of poor, uh, I will say, leadership. And it, it turned a bunch of engineers who might otherwise have lived honest lives into a bunch of liars and morally injured them. Moral injury often is the consequence of, of morally blind uh, management or leadership. Another of the moral injuries, one that I found particularly compelling because of its uh, recent relevance uh, since we've been talking about Afghanistan and Iraq and one that seems to be, even though in this case, it, I don't think it really qualifies as, well, maybe it does qualify as us getting involved in a civil war, but is the responsibility to avoid contamination, which I hadn't thought of uh, in a philosophical context or even really put it into words. But I recall when the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, we left behind all of these uh, translators and informants and trained soldiers who were immediately uh, targeted for retaliation uh, by the people we were ostensibly helping them uh, gain freedom from. Yes. Uh, and I feel terrible about the people I worked with in Vietnam. I have no way of knowing how many of them uh, were killed or imprisoned or tortured after we left. I think uh, if we have the, if we, if we feel or if we decide to intervene in a civil war, uh, as we've done, most of our wars have been interventions in civil wars in the last 50 years. Uh, in Korea, uh, in uh, Vietnam, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan, these, these were all essentially civil wars. I think, morally speaking, uh, we need to know something. We need to know quite a bit more about the country we're dealing with. Americans never really did learn much about Vietnam. And 
I think even after years of engagement in Vietnam, uh, the leadership in Washington still didn't know much about the country. We were supposedly defending. I, I think that uh, we were right to keep troops in Korea. Had we not kept troops in Korea, uh, I think South Korea would not have had a chance to uh, develop as it has. It's taken a long time. It's not easy. Uh, but it has become now a pretty uh, stable and successful democracy. But it took a while. Uh, in Afghanistan, 20 years we were in Afghanistan. And as far as I can tell, the American decision makers never knew enough about the country uh, to really to help build it. And somehow we were, we were committed to helping uh, one side in that civil war build a successful government and nation, but we were taking our hands off nation building. Uh, it was absurd. Not only that, but we didn't develop the military. Uh, when, you know, Trump, President Trump pulled out uh, most of the American troops and the contractors, uh, then things started seriously going downhill in Afghanistan because uh, without the contractors, uh, the Afghan helicopters couldn't fly. Uh, and without them, they couldn't supply or pay their troops. Uh, so things were going to hell uh, already uh, before the actual withdrawal because we had withdrawn the support that the Afghan army essentially needed. And somehow we had failed to give the Afghan army what it needed to support itself. We hadn't given them the equipment or the training, apparently. I, I can't understand why not. But in general, I would say, if we enter a situation like the one in Afghanistan, uh, we are committing ourselves to maintain troops there uh, for several generations, as we have in, in Korea, as we have in Europe. Uh, Interesting. Otherwise, uh, we're throwing thousands of people to the wolves. After the communists won in Vietnam, and I, we need to be clear about this. Many of the anti-war people uh, said they were pro-communist. The communists did terrible things to Vietnam after they won. And I think we could have known, we did know, that they would. Uh, after we with, withdrew in 73, uh, we'd not only pulled our troops out, we pulled out every kind of support. So that when the North Vietnamese came down with armored columns, they didn't have uh, anti-tank weapons. 
even the very simple anti-tank weapons they didn't have. So they were unable to defend themselves. And we left them like that, which I think is unconscionable. After that, uh, two million, there were two million refugees fled from Vietnam, fled the communists, and about a million uh, former uh, soldiers who were who, who were fighting on the side we were fighting on uh, were put in detention camps, some of which were very cruel, and some of which really were death camps. Uh, and that's a lot of people uh, we abandoned. We set them up and then left them. Uh, to me, that's just excruciatingly painful because I knew I worked as an advisor. I worked with these people. The general I, I mentioned to you uh, had been assigned as a as a very young general, as a brigadier, to work with Vietnamese generals and had been told during the peace talks in 73, he'd been instructed to tell the Vietnamese generals that the U.S. would not abandon them. Uh, and he did pass on what he'd been told. But the people in Washington who told him that were lying. You know, you can't I mean, I can't think about this without feeling uh, that I myself am tainted by my association with this uh, messed up and dishonest uh, war. I think I think the communists were indeed bad guys, and uh, we can give a strong argument for fighting them. But, and, and preventing the dominoes, I think that there really was some truth to the domino theory. During the period we held the line in Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Taiwan, Malaysia, uh, South Korea, uh, beat back whatever communist threats there were and, and started building very strong economies. It's been argued that good came out of it, but at what an absurd cost to the Vietnamese. I think the U.S. treated them abominably. And that is, we could have defended them against the communists without uh, successfully helped them build their own military, and we could have maintained a presence wouldn't have to be a very big presence, but a presence that would act as a tripwire and help keep South Vietnam free. Uh, an enormous moral failure from my point of view. You just mentioned uh, feeling tainted by some of the things that you were part of. And I recall reading in one of your papers I believe it begins with uh, an assertion, something along the lines of, uh, in these cases or in these topics, uh, work in these topics, philosophy can save lives. And 
uh, forgive me if I'm being presumptuous, but I'm curious if on some level the attention you've devoted to these topics over the past years, if you view that in any way as an attempt at atoning for what you might have been part of or a way of healing your own uh, feelings of of moral injury or maybe i'm i'm completely off the mark yes oh no you're you're not off base at all um i do think if uh the military would take some of the ideas i've been developing seriously uh lives would be saved but of course they don't um I in uh, in my latest book, which just came out last week, uh, "Living Toward Virtue." Uh, there is a section on healing. I've thought a lot about that. Uh, if what is essential to living toward virtue is a kind of commitment to uh, trying to live well. Then after moral injury, a part of uh, healing is a recommitment. You try to make yourself whole again. And that commitment, of course, requires action. What kind of action? Uh, you talk about atonement. I think there are a number of things we can do. Uh, you know, contributions to uh, charitable organizations that deal with refugees, future refugees. There's maybe nothing we can do about the past, but there's something we can do about the future. And indeed, there are things we can do about the past. I contribute to an organization that uh, mainly uh, helps the Vietnamese people get uh, cluster bombs and mines out of their farmland. And they're still doing that all these years after the war. Still finding unexploded ordnance that the Americans dropped. Uh, so I can do something about the past but mostly I can do something about the future. Uh, writing helps me get clear in my head about what my values really are. And I, I can always hope that people who, people will read what I write and that it, they will, as a result, make appropriate changes in the way they they uh, they live. I would I would like to persuade people that uh, there is no such thing as a just war. That war is at the best, at at most, a necessary evil, and the less of it, the better.
and I'm not alone. You... There's a growing movement uh, pushing in that direction from different uh, uh, philosophical starting points. <clears throat> Something that you said in the outset of your book uh, that I found it, it rang quite true for me is that it's much harder to do what you have judged to be right and do it consistently than it is to make the judgment. And I think we can all probably relate to that. Do you have any, I mean, advice might be a silly word to use, but any insight into about into how we can go about sort of closing the gap and do more right rather than simply uh, make the judgment about what is right. Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, uh, getting, making good judgments in moral cases can be easy in some cases and can be very hard in others. But actually living consistently by our good judgments, as I said, I think is harder. Uh, we have, uh, I think we've evolved uh, to think well of ourselves and to think better of ourselves than we should. It probably has, gives us some evolutionary advantage. I don't know, but it, it does seem to be a human trait. Uh, another way of putting it is uh, we are all uh, naturally capable of fairly high levels of self-deception. So uh, if, if you think about how things go wrong in the business world uh, and do a little research, you'll stumble on something called the fraud triangle, uh, which has been around since the 1950s. And one of the, uh, there's, I think the three, po the three legs of the triangle, if you will, are uh, uh, opportunity, need, and then something like self-deception. Uh, most embezzlers are borrowing in their minds, not stealing. Mm -hmm. Sam Bankman Freed. It's gonna be okay. Comes to mind. There's gonna be enough money to pay everybody back. You know, it's, it's gonna work out. Don't, don't worry. Uh, I doubt if uh, the man in the news these days from FTX, uh, Bankman Freed, you know, is, uh, sees himself or ever saw himself as a thief, uh, he was essentially borrowing uh, from one stash of cash uh, to support uh, another business. And he didn't, he was able to blind himself to the fact that this was theft. Uh, And that's very easy to do in the business world, apparently. Enron uh, 
was a thieving operation, but I don't think any of the people who were doing the thieving thought of it as theft. They were uh, you know, maneuvering money and offshore accounts and doing this and that and the other uh, to keep the business afloat and save their stockholders from any great losses. And they didn't, they prob most of them probably did not see their actions as constituting fraud. Uh, one of the, I think probably the most important uh, practical ethical thinker in philosophy in the U.S. these days is Hugh LaFollette. And he has argued that something like self-deception is behind uh, virtually all wrongdoing. Well, self-deception is something we can do, we can do things about, right? Uh, we, can, uh, we can work on uh, clarity uh, about what we're doing. And I think that's one of the main messages of my book is that we need to maintain a level of self-examination that would uh, uh, prevent us uh, from falling into these traps and thinking of, say, embezzling as borrowing. And is that say again? What is that? What you have in mind when you're this practice? Is that what you have in mind when? And I'm very sorry. I'm going to butcher the Greek, but uh, the epimeleistai tes psyches. Yeah, epimeleistai <laughs> tes psyches. Yeah. Yeah, uh, caring for the health of the soul in the Socratic approach right. to practical ethics. I think the uh, the way Socrates presents it and the way he practices it himself uh, involves self-examination as a major major part of of, of self-care. Uh, and Socrates is not alone in this. I, in my book, my I quote right at the beginning as an epigraph, a passage from Camus, Albert Camus' wonderful novel, The Plague, La Peste, a passage in which one of his characters uh, who's been involved in, uh, or, and his father especially been involved in a lot of killing, uh, says we have to uh, so many people have had their minds uh, twisted uh, by by language that makes it that calls uh, an assassination by another name but we need to call murder murder uh, if we're going to be on the right track and that same theme shows up in Confucian ethics, uh, the rectification of names. Uh, and I have quite a lot to say about that uh, in my book. Uh, it's very important to call what we're doing by, by its right name. Uh, if I have time, I'll, now I'll tell you 
a story from George Eliot. George Eliot, uh, the novelist, the Victorian novelist, is uh, uh, writes brilliantly about about people, good, otherwise good people doing terrible things, and she gives this example uh, in uh, a book called Felix Holt, uh, the Radical. Uh, there's a there's a lawyer who's been handling people's affairs and has been uh, uh, essentially running something like a Ponzi scheme, I guess, uh, and now suddenly has to pay off and doesn't have the cash to do it. Uh, to illustrate this, she gives the advantage, the, the example, sorry, of a of a German poet uh, who is uh, uh, given, uh, who is traveling from Hamburg to Berlin by train, and a friend gives him a very special sausage available only in Hamburg, which he is supposed to convey to mutual friends in Berlin. And on the train, he sees nothing wrong with tasting the sausage. After all, you can have a taste of the sausage and still deliver it to the yeah. friend in Berlin. So he tastes it. And he has another taste. And each time he tastes it, of course, the same argument holds good. You can taste the sausage and still Slippery deliver slope. it to the friend. Um, but then at some point he realizes that humanly speaking, there isn't enough sausage left to deliver. Uh, so he eats eats the last bit. And the point, of course, is he's been eating the sausage, but calling it by, by calling his actions by another name, tasting. And that that illustrates the point about embezzling and borrowing and so on. <clears throat> I had a friend, uh, I came to, he was a graduate student of mine. He, uh, and I, I was interested in him because he was a veteran like me. And we had many good conversations. Uh, he spent some time in federal prison and I had one conversation with him after that. He dropped out of graduate school. He really wasn't cut out for for it and uh, was making a living uh, printing and uh, $20 bills. And somehow it didn't occur to him that passing counterfeit currency was stealing until afterwards. You know, when he got out of prison, he said, I did, why did I not realize that every time I passed a $20 bill, I was stealing $20? But he was able to shield his mind up from that. So one of the important things for us to think about in practical ethics is how not to shield our minds, how to expose our minds to the reality of what it is that we're actually doing.
and you can supply many, many examples of this, I'm sure. Now, is are we still talking about caring for the health of the human soul, or is this the third tenet of the Socratic approach that I hadn't mentioned explicitly, which is recognizing human ignorance? Well, these are all connected. Sure, sure. <clears throat> because if you, if part of caring for the human soul is uh, uh, preventing self-deception, and then if uh, you fail to prevent self-deception and do something you know is wrong, like, I mean, my friend knew it was wrong to steal. He just didn't think he was stealing. Uh, when you do realize that you've been stealing and you have no doubt that stealing is wrong, uh, then you're sustaining a moral injury. So these things are all connected. You mentioned earlier, and this is particularly fascinating for me, that writing helped you get clear in your head about what your values really are. And I think you said that particularly in reference to philosophy, but I know that you've also written uh, some fiction and some theater. And I'm wondering if that's played a similar, albeit different role in getting your thoughts clear. Uh, because, I mean, fiction is a great place to uh, sort of run experiments with practical ethics, if but you will. Yes. Uh I uh, I was psychologically a mess uh, when I left the army in January of 1971. My girlfriend recognized I, a that I was a mess and hardly recognized me or my mind anyway. <clears throat> uh, I had been trying to write a play that was supposed to mirror what was going on in Vietnam, but it was based on the story of the Fourth Crusade, which, you know, like most crusades, uh, seemed to have a, a highly moral and religious and noble goal, but which ran amok. Uh, it never got past Istanbul, what is now Istanbul, uh, uh, Byzantium, Constantinople. Uh, the crusade uh, was in debt to the Doge of Venice, and it uh, conquered uh, Byzantium and sacked it in 1204. And that's as far as the crusade got. And I thought this idea of a war that had ostensibly a noble goal that runs amok was a nice image for what I thought was going on in Vietnam. So I started that play, actually, uh, in my head, I started working on it before I went to Vietnam. But then, uh, after I got back, yeah, I was unable to work on any kind of writing while I was in Vietnam, that my mind was just too much 
was too torn up. Uh, but after my return in June of 1971, I spent a month entirely alone, uh, luckily, because I needed that uh, in the woods in Maine and, and wrote that play. And that was very therapeutic. I felt much better afterwards. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, I wrote another play based on my, even more closely based on my experience of Vietnam. And that helped a lot. That play, but back both those plays, actually I self-published, they're on the internet as, uh, they're on Amazon rather, as uh, under the title, The Vietnam Plays. Um, the second play, Ithaca in Black and White, uh, was uh, produced here and won a local Best Script Award for the year. And I think it's quite a, and it's it's been staged a few times since in Austin, uh, successfully. Hmm. It's, it's a good play. Hmm. And it helped me quite a bit to write it. So... Yes, writing fiction has been therapeutic, uh, as as has writing philosophy also been therapeutic. Okay, well, I have I'll I'll leave it with two more questions. Then one, I I am very much interested in uh, parables, legends, lore, that sort of thing, and I had never heard of the parable of um, Gyges ring or Gyges ring. Oh, my so goodness. what is the what is the parable of Gija's ring and what can we learn from it? Well, uh, this is a wonderful story that Plato has his characters consider in early on in the Republic. Uh, the great question of the Republic is uh, basically why why be moral? Uh, why should I do what is right by other people when uh, I might be uh, get richer and more powerful if I just ignore ethics in my treatment of other people altogether? And that question comes up in a number of places in Plato. Uh, and the central example that they're thinking of is a tyrant uh, like the tyrant of Macedon, a man named Archesilaus, uh, who uh, murdered enough of his relatives that he could become tyrant and became very rich and very powerful. Uh, his uh, admirers thought this is a model of a happy human being. Uh, he didn't pay any attention uh, to what is right. Uh, he just use his power to get the wealth and power he wanted. And isn't that admirable? Why should we, uh, if we have an opportunity uh, to murder our way to power, why not take it? Uh, so here's the example of Gyges. Gyges is a shepherd who stumbles upon a tomb in which there's an ancient uh, corpse, I guess, with a ring on his finger. 
Gyges takes the ring off the dead man's finger and puts it on his own and discovers that it makes him invisible. And using that ring, he can now do anything he wants and get away with it because there's never any evidence against him. Of course, there's some ancillary assumptions here about things like fingerprints and other circumstantial evidence, but that doesn't matter. The point is the parable. Uh, suppose I give you the power through something like IG's ring to commit whatever crimes you want and never, ever have to pay for them. Is there any reason why you should not commit those crimes? And of course, the Socratic answer is going to be, yes, there is, and it's moral injury. <clears throat> but it's a wonderful parable, and it puts the issue in very stark terms. Uh, suppose you really can get away with anything. Why not? Go whole hog. And we've had public figures uh, who have thought they could get away with anything. And maybe they can. Does Plato or through him, uh, Gyges sort of offer an answer of sorts as to why we shouldn't just go whole hog? Does he suffer any consequences from using the ring uh, a tantamount to moral injury? Um, he uh, doesn't have a lot more to say about Gyges, but the whole... Uh, the whole of the Republic, which is a very substantial book, is his argument that we're better off uh, not doing wrong uh, because of the condition of our souls. And uh, the tyrant or the Gyges figure uh, who uh, suppresses his uh, his reason and his uh, to his appetites. The underlying idea, I think, is that uh, our reason uh, really is oriented towards what's, what's good and right, and always. And when we surrender to our appetites, our desires, uh, we essentially enslave the best part of us. So he will say in the end, uh, the least free person in the story I'm telling you is the tyrant because he has enslaved himself uh, to his passions. He could actually give an even more powerful example. Uh, and I'll give a modern one. Uh, there's a fabulous novel by Solzhenitsyn called The First Circle. Uh, the circles Solzhenitsyn is writing about are the various levels of engagement uh, with uh, Stalin's uh, system of prisons. And we start out learning that the prisoners 
who have essentially nothing to lose are have a, have a fairly high degree of freedom. Uh, they can think and say what they want. It's not going to make things any worse for them. The guards have less freedom. They're being watched. They could become prisoners. So they have to be very careful. And so on up the hierarchy. And we see as Solzhenitsyn presents it that there are lower degrees of freedom the higher up the hierarchy you go. And if you think about it for a minute, you realize, just to put it in American terms, uh, if you were a slaveholder, uh, you were not free to be compassionate or humane or even human to, towards the people you thought you owned. I put it that way because you can't own anyone. It was a mistake to think you did. Uh, in the the most moving part of the first circle, most moving to me, uh, we learn how Stalin is living, uh, terrified of everyone, uh, sick, uh, unable to consult a doctor because he's killed so many doctors that he has to be afraid that a doctor would kill him. And you know, when Stalin died, he was dead for two days before anyone dared to go into his bedroom. Uh, hmm. Everyone was so scared of him. And of course, he had no medical care at the end of his life because uh, he couldn't. He wasn't free to consult a doctor as we are. You know, the more oppressive you are to other people, the less freedom you have. It's not just that you're uh, oppressing yourself, mm -hmm. uh, but that's a large part of it. In any case, that's, that's uh, a, a short way to put Plato's argument is that the reason why uh, we should be moral is that if we're not, we injure our souls. Okay. Well, I'll, the last thing I'll ask will be more lighthearted. I can't help but ask a, a classicist like you because I'm I'm very fascinated and with language and a lover of language myself. Do you have any favorite words in English that have where you're quite fascinated with the, or taken by the etymology. So I talked to uh, Chris Babanich, who's a, a professor at Stanford, and he's a, a fan of the word anaphylaxis. And I, I really like the word dulosis, which is a, a term in uh, myrmecology for ant slavery. Uh, are, is there anything that, that comes to mind for you? Oh, there are lots of words I love, but let me give you just one that's been on my mind lately. Uh, it's not Greek. Uh, sublimation. Okay. What's the what's the etymology of that word? Well, same as sublime, uh, but hmm. sublimation, of course, is uh, the analog to evaporation for solids. 
Mm -hmm. When a substance goes straight from solid to gas, that's sublimation. And I love that connection with the, the sublime. I see. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me, Paul. It's really been wonderful. Good. Nice talking to you.